I got to tell you, when that song's playing, I actually sneak in and I sat on a little stool behind the choir because I'm just loving that music. You guys liking that? It's good stuff. I mean, I uh, love that song. Uh, I'll be on the front row, third service, listening to that. Just, just great stuff. But we're glad that you're here. Thanks for coming to Grace. And whether you're here live with us, which we appreciate you being here, but also welcome to those at Paulding and also people that join us uh, on the internet. That's more and more people are doing that. And we're just glad everybody's here. We're actually starting a brand new series today, and it's called God Questions. We've actually done this before a few years ago. It's, it's been a while, and, uh, but we're back on it. And this is a series where we've gone to the community and uh, to our friends and neighbors, people who don't typically come to church especially, and then we say, hey, do you have any questions about God or the Bible? Or if you could ask God a question, what, what would it be? And then we're going to talk about those on Sunday morning. So this morning, I'm not picking the topic. Our community is picking the topic. And that's the way it's going to be leading up to Easter the next few weeks. And again, thanks for being here. So as we, as we look at this, here's the deal. I think um, a lot of us, I think everybody here will benefit really. And, and here's the way I'm thinking about this. Whether you're here and you're an atheist or agnostic, I think it would be good to hear this the, the, these evidences and some of these questions that you might have answered. But if you're here as a follower of Christ, I think it's very good for you too because it's a good exercise for us to go through and, and just rethink all these questions that people in our community have in our culture and, and realize you know, some of the best ways or just that we have responses for that and, and be able to engage people with truth. Good stuff. As a matter of fact, there's a passage in the Bible, one of my favorites, in 1 Peter 3.15, and here's what it says. But, since, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect or reverence. So this is for us. We want to be able to give an answer to people who ask us about the hope that we have and so this is all part of that. So, if you're new to Grace, uh, we hope, first of all, that you'll just relax. And maybe you got some coffee or some tea. We're glad that you're with us. Thanks for being here again. And then we hope, as we talk about these questions, which today we're going we're gonna to hit on some questions that have to do with the existence of God. Some kind of detailed questions about the Bible. We'll probably deal with some more Bible questions later, maybe as a, a bigger topic and then also kind of how some questions that have to do with, hey, what's the perspective on what's going on, how this stuff relates to us. So we're going to get started. Here's the first question, and it goes like this. Why doesn't God leave any evidence? There are billions of cold-hearted people who will go to hell only because they are critical thinkers and they base their beliefs on evidence. Okay, and, and so... The person writing this, who may, may be here this morning, um, first of all, we would say we really believe that there are many evidences for God. So I just want to mention a couple of these, but I got to tell you, I could talk for hours on evidences for God, and maybe later in the series we'll mention a few more, but just to kind of give you a flavor of this, I'd like to start out. And first of all, and again, this is science leading us to this evidence, and the first example would be the universe. For years and years, scientists thought that the universe was infinite and time was infinite both ways. And then there was a famous astronomer 
named Erwin Hubble. And Erwin Hubble discovered something called redshift, which is a phenomenon that when objects move away from us, their uh, light wave lengths lengthened and become a lower frequency. And because of this, there is a red shift. And then just the opposite for objects moving to us, it's blue shift. But as an astronomer, and by the way, Erwin Hubble, he's who they named the Hubble Telescope. You heard of that, right? That's who that's named after. So he realized he found this phenomenon. Well, because of that, that changed scientific thinking. All of a sudden, the scientists realize that there's proof that the universe is expanding over time. Well, if you just reverse that, that means in time past, if we went backwards in time, the universe would be shrinking, and all of a sudden they realize two things. One is that time is not infinite in the past. There was a starting point. And two, that whatever started it came from nothing. Those were the logical implications that scientists believe because of the discovery of redshift. We know that the universe is expanding. So let's just talk about these two things that now science is saying are facts. First of all, uh, finite time. Finite time. See, it used to be that scientists thought, Finite time, it just went, just like it's going in the future, it just always existed and always went kind of backwards. And, and I'll get to that in a moment. The other thing that I want to talk about is that everything was created from nothing. That, that that's, and that's where we get the Big Bang Theory. Scientists now, there's a resurgence of the Big Bang Theory because of the implications of redshift, which means the universe is expanding. So, you bring that all down, and then you have a Big Bang the implications, again, finite time in the past, and, and, and then something happened from nothing. So, interestingly enough, 35, so now scientists believe, wow, bang, nothing, and then poof, everything kind of happened. 3,500 years ago, 3,500 years ago, there was a group of people on the planet who said this very thing. You see, there's all these cultures over the last three, 4,000 years, all kinds of cultures that believe in God and gods and all this stuff. But there was one culture that said, one group of people that said, hey, there is a God who created everything from nothing. And that was the Hebrew people. And they got that. And, and that's what's recorded for us in the Old Testament. And, and if you were to ask them, well, where'd you get that from? Because we just found out that's true. They would say, we got that from God. God told us. So that is the whole issue of, coming, of everything coming from one point, which now scientists believe that's the way that happened. Now, the other thing is finite time. That there wasn't just time, time. See, as we look at the universe existing... There's all these things that have to happen perfectly, which I'll talk about in a minute. And, and all scientists agreed, the chances of all that happening, they're just minute. And so to solve that probability problem, 
They just said, well, there's infinite time in the past. So eventually, if you have infinite time, anything can happen, even no matter how improbable statistically it could possibly be, you, you create the possibility. Um, my wife and my, my youngest daughter have been in the habit for the last couple of months of playing Yahtzee. How many play Yahtzee? You know, it's a, it's a, a, a dice game. Uh, which is kind of like playing poker with dice. But anyway, it's, it's like you roll these five dice, and, and then you try to get these categories that are on the score sheet, and you get three rolls. You roll once, and you can take the ones you don't like away and roll them again, and you get to do that one more time. And so we're playing this game, and we had kind of a running thing where we're just doing it a lot of our evenings, uh, just playing two or three games. And, uh, and we were doing that. One time we're sitting down, Chris and I are sitting at the table with my wife Pam, and she rolls... A Yahtzee, first roll. She didn't even need the two other rolls. And it was like, whoa. You know, Yahtzee, first time. All five dice the same. And so that was the best thing on the scorecard. The very next time the turn, her turn came around to her, one roll, she rolled a large straight. She didn't even need her other two rolls. It was Yahtzee. Then the next time she touched the dice, a large straight. Those are the two best things on the Yahtzee scorecard. Now, and then... You know, she probably went one, but that didn't happen anymore. But let's just say she kept doing that. And every time she rolled the dice on one roll, without even using her other two rolls, the dice came up to be the next best thing on her scorecard until the game was over. She had a perfect Yahtzee game. All right, can you envision that? And let's say we play three games an evening. And she did it all three games. So she's only rolling one roll a turn. And every time her one roll is the best thing she could possibly get on the scorecard. And that happened every time in one game and then every time in all three games. And then every time every night of the week. And every week of the month. And every month. And she did that for five decades. Okay. Now, I got to tell you, if that just happened at one game, if not just two rolls were like that, but every roll, I'd be looking around for like the hidden camera, like what's going on here. You know, like this is not real because that's not how reality works. And if she kept doing that, first of all, I wouldn't want to play Yahtzee anymore, but it would be like, you know, hey, because she would always be beating me, which I don't like. But, uh, you know, it, but I would be thinking this is not real. This just does not happen. We all would. But now, is that theoretically possible? Well, yeah, every time you roll, it's possible that anything can come up. But when you string all these possibilities together, it becomes mind-boggling. Bog, bo, let, me, let, me, let me try a new word here. It becomes mind-bogglingly impossible. I mean, it's just, it's just out there. It's just the probability might be one in, in every atom of the universe that that's going to happen. It's just statistically impossible. But we could say it's, it's possible, just not probable. It's not realistic. So here's what scientists used to say, because that's really what it would take for the universe to come into existence. You'd have to, let's say, let's say roll a perfect game three nights... Oh, Three games a night for 10 years, all right? They said, well, even though that sounds impossible, if there was infinite time in the past, it could have happened. Even, even though even then it sounds crazy, 
It could have happened with infinite time. But now all of a sudden they don't have infinite time. So here's the answer now. The answer, since they don't have infinite time in the past, the answer is there must be infinite universes. Because without infinite time, there's no way this is going to happen. So the alternative is there must just be infinite amount of universes with finite time. So that's the way it could happen. That does not solve the problem. That compounds the problem. I mean, you just got to understand that type of circular reasoning. So those are the... those are. Two evidences, you know, that God exists, or one evidence, the universe. And then there's another principle called the anthropic principle, or, or the fine-tuning of the universe. And, and you got to catch this, because people misunderstand this a lot, uh, even Christians. You know, what that means is scientists look around at our universe, and they realize, wow, there's all these principles at work Today, these laws at work in our universe, that all these constants, and they have to be perfectly tuned. If any one of these constants was just less than 1% off, the universe couldn't exist. So, and these are things like the electromagnetic force. If that was a little bit different than it is now, our world couldn't exist, but our universe couldn't exist. The speed of light, if that was any different, universe couldn't exist. The exact strength of the weak and strong nuclear force, if that ratio was just a little bit different. The See, now here's, here's where we mess up this argument. I'm not saying that if these things weren't finely tuned, that there couldn't be life on earth. That's also true, but that's not my argument. Because then what people would say, well, if that was a little different, some type of life that fit that would evolve, is how people think. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if any of those things were a little bit off, the universe couldn't exist. That's the point. Not life. The whole universe. It would be impossible for the universe to exist. So that's a hard thing to illustrate because of the statistics we're talking about. So a simplistic way of doing that is our soundboard. You know, we have a soundboard. This is Matt and Justin at our soundboard this morning. And, and then you can see there's, you know, like 50 sliders and dials on this board. I didn't count them, but trust me, you know, whatever. That could be a little off. But let's say there's 50 of them. There could be 75, but whatever. You know, there they are. But each dial and slider let's just say, has a uh, hundred settings, you know, because it's all just by degree. And so if they all have a hundred settings and there's 50 of them, here's what we're saying for the universe. If somebody came in at three o'clock this morning and adjusted one of those sliders or just one of those dials by one degree, which we wouldn't even notice when we looked at it, the universe couldn't exist that's what scientists are telling us. It's the anthropic principle. Not, and again, this applies to life on earth too, but it's beyond life. It's the existence of the universe that we're dealing with. So here's another question that kind of has to do with science. It goes this way. How can you disprove science when science is constantly 
beating out religion, which is kind of an interesting way to put that. How can you disprove science when science is constantly beating out religion? How can you prove that God exists? Now, now I could just turn the question around and say, well, how can you prove God doesn't exist? But they're not the ones saying they're going to answer questions. I am, so that's not fair. That's the question. It's on me. All right, so, but, but I, I, I think we could take a stab at this. So you can make the case, you know, science doesn't prove this one way or the other. But how is this? How can you prove that God exists? Well, the way we would prove that is that we would look at the evidences of God kind of like we already did. We just talked about two. I'm telling you, if you take my word for this, we could talk hours and hours and hours just labeling the types of evidence without going into the specifics. And we'll actually probably do more of those because we'll probably have more questions kind of like this or follow-up questions. So that could easily happen. But here's what I want you to, to see. There is evidence that God exists, scientific evidence that God exists. But what's going on here is the way scientific data is interpreted all depends on the presuppositions of the scientists. Or put another way, it all depends on the philosophy of the scientist. And there are basically two philosophies. One philosophy is naturalism. And naturalism is saying the only thing that exists are the things that we can see and know about with our five senses. So naturalism would say uh, that the universe is made up exclusively of energy and matter. And we could only, it's only the things that we could sense with our five senses. But also with our five senses, we also have science. And science enables us to detect and analyze with our minds things we wouldn't otherwise know about. You know, things that we can't see like atoms and galaxies and the activity inside of a cell and all that stuff. But So that's all in there. But according to naturalism, it's only all that stuff that I just talked about in nature that exists, nothing else. But there's another philosophy. And the other philosophy is, is called different things. But just for the sake of this morning, I'll just say we'll call it naturalism plus. Naturalism plus recognizes all that. But Naturalism Plus says we are not ruling out that there might be something in the universe besides the things that we can actually experience with our five senses. We're not necessarily saying that it more does exist. We're saying we cannot just rule that out for no reason. So Naturalism Plus There might be more than what we experience and can know about with our five senses. And that more, naturalism plus scientists, if that's their philosophy, they would describe the more, the plus, as that there is a God in our universe who is all-powerful. That's just the far majority of them, naturalism plus philosophy would say that. So what I want to say here is that the division is not between science and faith. Science doesn't disprove God. Faith doesn't disprove science. There's nothing in our faith that says science is bad, and there's nothing in science that says God doesn't exist. 
There's no division there. And people frame it like the decision, there's a huge gap here between science and faith. No. The gap is between the philosophies, the two competing philosophies that you have when you interpret the scientific data. It's all the presupposition. The divide is, are you going to be naturalism, which means no matter what data comes in, my presupposition, my philosophy is there can't possibly be anything outside of nature to explain this. And then I start figuring it out from there. Or naturalism plus, another guy, a scientist, he's looking at the very same data and he's saying, yeah, I get that. But I'm also realizing that there, it's possible that there could be another explanation that doesn't fit into naturalism. I will take the explanation that fits the evidence the best without ruling one out before I see it. Do you guys see the difference there? That's the divide. Do you guys see the difference there? Yeah, I'm still a little disappointed. But anyway, I'm just saying, do you see the difference? But, you know... That's the difference. That's the divide, not between science and faith. God, by the way, and this is everywhere. Um, one time to illustrate this, I don't know if you guys remember this. I had a paint shaker and I had an empty paint can. And I had parts of a cell phone, all the parts. And I put it into the paint can. Anybody remember this? And then during the whole talk, the paint can was being shaken. And just shaken and shaken for the, you know, 35 minutes or whatever, probably 45 minutes that I talked. You know, so that was happening. And nobody was surprised when I opened up the can that the cell phone wasn't put back together. Why? Because that never happens. Order never comes from chaos. Design never comes from chaos. Order can never come from an explosion like the Big Bang. We don't see that principle ever operating anywhere. But naturalism only will use that as the explanation because they've ruled out any other explanations. That's what I'm saying. You just got to follow that. The cell phone's in your pocket. We, we don't see that without realizing there was a designer that made this. We don't look at a building without the implication that there was a builder or an architect. It's the same thing. It, it, it's like our set. We, we have a new set. No, not one of you came in and saw this new set and thought maybe somebody left a door open and the wind came in here and sort of shifted things around and we came in and got, well, this kind of works for us and we'll just go with it. You know, nobody's thinking that because order never comes from chaos. Of course, some people will say, yeah, get fancy on me, yeah. So some people will say, it could do more than we think. Yeah, some people will say, well, that's different, Kevin. That's electronics. You know, that's right, that have been designed and built by somebody and then put up to make a pattern. That's what we're saying. We all know there was a designer. And you think that's complicated? Just these lights? You could take every piece of equipment on this entire, entire platform and it is not as complicated as your hand in front of your face. Do we understand that? And, and how do we know that it's not as complicated as our hand? Because science tells us that. We can make this stuff. 
We cannot create a hand that can do everything a human hand could do. Not only attached to a brain, but can heal itself, can reproduce. I mean, we can't make a hand. We can't create life. This is way more complicated. And the more we find out about science, it's always the more, it's more complicated than we thought. DNA, way more information in there than we ever thought. Where's the information coming from? What we're saying is, hey, the balance we see in the cosmos, the information that's stored in every DNA cell, all this stuff, this points to a creator. No design comes from chaos. The evidence is there. Now, that's also what the Bible says, by the way. There's a passage in Romans 1, beginning of verse 18. I'll just read it for you, make this case. It's just the Bible's tracking here with this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So we might want to ask, what's that talking about? He says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. He's saying, we, none of us have an excuse to deny God just by looking around in nature. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Hey, what's this saying? It's just saying the. The Bible's telling us, look, you can know there's a God. You don't know a lot about God, but you can just know there is a God by looking around. That's basically what this is saying. So here's what I'm saying. There's evidence for God. And as you keep studying and looking at all the evidences for God, the accumulative weight, we've only talked about two, the accumulative weight of all the evidences of God are just more of the evidences. You don't even know all of them. I'm saying, you'll, as you study this, before you even get to the end of the evidences of God, the accumulative weight of the evidence of God is convincing to the rational mind. That's what I'm saying. It becomes convincing as you stack them all up. So here's what I'm saying. The theory that there is a God who made everything in the world that we see fits the evidence better than the theory that there is no God as we look at the evidence all around us. Bold statement. That's what I'm clearly saying, though. That's the whole point. Okay. Here's another thing. So let's just kind of skip ahead, and we can get back to more of these arguments some other time, maybe, because there's a whole bunch of them. And there's internal and external ears. Anyway, let's just say, well, if there is a God who created us or, or is responsible for everything we see, let's just say it that way, wouldn't it make sense that since he's God and got everything going and we are thinking people that God's responsible for somehow, wouldn't it make sense that God, because he, he allowed us to be thinking people, 
Wouldn't it make sense that he would reveal himself in a way that we can think about him and understand him? And the answer is, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And because of that, God has generally revealed, it, he's revealed that there is a God, that he exists through creation. But he's revealed stuff specifically about him through two primary ways. The Bible and his son, Jesus Christ. It's the first one of these I want to talk about because it matches up with some of the questions. So here's a question about the Bible. It kind of all fits. It goes this way. My adult son tells me he believes in God, but not so much the Bible. Just what we're talking about. Okay, you look at the evidence. Okay, there's got to be a God. Not going with the Bible, though. He says it's because man wrote it and men are liars, cheats, and thieves. I try to respond, but I feel I need a better answer than I give. Okay, so, so what about the Bible? Well, the Bible's an amazing book. Historically, it's an amazing book. It's written in three languages, mostly Hebrew and Greek, but there's some small sections of Aramaic in there. Written in three languages by 40 different authors over 1,600 years. That, that's the time frame the Bible was written. Yet amazingly, and by the way, these authors, some were kings, some were peasants, like uh, shepherds, you know, some were apostles, uh, some were prophets. I mean, it's just, they're all over the map. Very diverse, but yet the Bible consistently displays one theme. From cover to cover, it's really about one story, God making a way for us to reconnect to him. Or God redeeming mankind. That's really what the whole message of the Bible with all these authors is really saying. Now, how the Bible was written, as this person asks the question, they're just saying, hey, I'm okay with God. But, you know, the Bible, it's written by men. Men are all fallible. Men, or how did he say it? Men are liars, cheats, and thieves. Here's the amazing thing. The Bible agrees with you on that. So, hey, you're right. Men are liars, thieves, and cheats. So, by the way, you're agreeing with the Bible when you say that. Kind of cool. But anyway, what the Bible explains the process. Because men are liars, cheats, and thieves, how can we trust it? Well, there's actually a principle that defines us, and it's told about to us. It's called inspiration. It's not inspiration like, hey, I was inspired to paint or write a song. That's not the, the same use of the word. Inspiration, literally, in the Greek, when it's translated inspiration, it literally reads in the Greek, God breathed. This came from God. Even though men wrote it down, God used men, came from God. And now there's some passages that kind of explain that. First is 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. It says this. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Key. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. You see, the writer is saying, yeah, it was written by a guy. But it wasn't his thing. It was God working through him by way of the Holy Spirit to influence him to write what God wanted written. And then there's another place that kind of talks about inspiration. It's 2 Timothy 3.16. 3, 
It says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Saying, all scripture, this is Paul writing a late book in the New Testament saying, all the scripture is inspired, meaning God breathed and is useful for us, is what he's saying. So let's look at the New Testament. So how'd that happen practically? Well, in the New Testament... Some of Jesus' contemporaries, who were his closest followers, called the apostles, and Paul, who became apostle, we won't get into that, but but these people lived at the time of Christ, and the close associates of the apostles. All the New Testament books were written in this generation of Jesus, within this time frame. And they were all either apostles, who Jesus picked, Or they were like the secretaries or the scribes that hung out with the apostles, so they wrote it for them. That's who wrote the New Testament. And we're saying this. Now, that doesn't mean everything these guys wrote was the Bible. They knew when this was happening and when when it wasn't happening. And so that then allowed us to get the New Testament. Now, here's another question about the Bible as a whole, more about the Old Testament. And this actually is kind of a follow-up from a question two years ago, which is kind of cool. Hang with me. So here's a question. Based on your answer to the last series of God questions, that have been like 2013, on how the Catholic Church added books to the Bible at the Council of Trent, why do pre-Council of Trent Bibles, like the Latin Vulgate and the Gutenberg Bible, have all 73 books? So, great question. Honest question, good stuff. But let me explain some things before we start. We're we're talking about the Old Testament. The Hebrew Old Testament has 24 books. Our Old Testament that we use, we have 39 books, but it's the exact same thing. And, And here's the difference in the numbers. Hebrews calls, like Samuel... It's just Samuel. But in our Bible, it's 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. We just divided it. There's no change in anything. It's just different. We just put it, separated, made one book into two. First and second. Hebrew Bible, Chronicles. Our Bible, First and Second Chronicles. Hebrew Bible, Book of Kings. Our Bible, First Kings, Second Kings. Same exact stuff. Nothing has been changed. It's just more books. And then the big thing is, at the end of the Hebrew Bible, there's 12 minor prophets and and they're and they just put that in the 12 prophets and called that one book where in our bible it's each prophet is is listed as a book so that's why the 24 books of the old testament the hebrew old testament the hebrew bible because they don't believe in the new testament the 24 books of the hebrew bible is exactly identical to the 39 books that you have in the bible in front of you on your pew rack Same thing. That makes sense so far? Okay, now, the Catholic Bible has seven more books than than our Bible. And as a matter of fact, the Eastern Orthodox Bible has more books than that. They have 51 books. So there's kind of three groups, and then and those are those are different. Those aren't just kind of renumbering like what happened in the first two examples. These are new material, different books. So you just gotta get that. So Hebrew 24, ours 39, Catholics 
46, Eastern Orthodox, 51. So what happened is somebody, and it might have been the same person, asked the question and said, hey, why do the Catholic, Catholics have these seven books? Why did the Protestants take those books away? And, and, what, and then my answer was, kind of a simplistic answer, I said, well, actually, it's not that the Protestants took the books away. It's that the Catholic Church added them at, at a time called the Council of Trent, which wasn't until the mid-1500s in history. And so he, the person who wrote this, is pushing back on this, which is fair. And he's saying, whoa, 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 you're saying they were added by the Catholic Church in the mid-1500s. Well, then why does the Latin Vulgate, which is prior to the 1500s, contain the apoc- these seven books we call the Apocrypha? Why does the Latin Vulgate contain the Apocrypha? And why does the Gutenberg Bible complain, contain the Apocrypha? And really, the question's even bigger than that. Because a lot of us grew up reading the King James Bible. Is that true of anybody? And the King James Bible that was written in 1611 by Protestants had the Apocrypha in it. But here's, here's what they did. The King James translators did not believe that the Apocrypha was really inspired part of the Bible. They just bound it with the Bible because they thought it was important historical Jewish literature. And so what they did is they had the Old Testament, same Old Testament we have. Then in between the Old and the New Testament, they stuck the Apocrypha, but then they wrote in there all the reasons that the Apocrypha, they did not consider the Word of God. So it was in the book, it was in their copy of the Bible, but they were explaining even though why they put it in there and that they did not believe it was God's Word. Does that make sense? Apparently, not so much. All right. No, do you, do you understand where I'm at so far? Okay, so they're saying this doesn't, we're, we're including it, but don't take this like you do the rest of the Bible. It's not as good. It's not really inspired. We don't think it belongs. And here are all the reasons, which were seven or ten reasons that they had for that. Reasons like no prophet wrote the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha is self-contradicting, Jesus referred to every section of the Old Testament, never the Apocrypha. You know, all the, and they just listed them all out. We don't believe it. And if you just read the Apocrypha compared to the rest of the Bible, you would see the difference. It just sounds different. Well, then the question is, why, why in the, so the Apocrypha always existed. We're not arguing that. And it was Hebrew writings. They were Hebrew books. But the Hebrews didn't consider them part of their Bible. They liked them. It was Hebrew history. First and Second Maccabees, for example, is telling about wars and what happened with the Jewish people. Good stuff. But the Hebrews were saying, hey, these are our books. This is the Bible, and these aren't the Bible. These are not every writing a Jewish person wrote was the Bible. And they were saying, yeah, these are cool. We like them. We respect them. We read them. But they're not the Bible. They're not inspired. We just said, yeah. The Hebrews are saying that we believe them. And Jesus never referred to us, so we're good with that. There's a lot of weird stuff in there. Why 1500s? So people had them. They were a part of Bibles, but they weren't considered inspired necessarily. Some Catholics probably always thought they were inspired, but this is, we're now going back before the Catholic Church. But anyway, so why? Well, interesting timing. The Council of Trent was in the mid-1500s, the last several years, so... 
just mid-1500s, Council on Trent, they say, hey, these books belong in the Bible. Why would they do that? Well, there's a reason for that. Because in the early 1500s, before that, there was a big thing in church history called the Reformation. The Reformation was this huge movement in Europe that happened because all these people started reading the Bible. Why did they start reading the Bible then? Because 100 years before the Reformation in 1517, there was an invention called the printing press. And what's the first thing they made on the first printing press? The Bible. Now, all of a sudden, they can mass produce Bibles. People didn't have Bibles before this. A lot of priests didn't have Bibles before this. Bibles were very hard to come by. But now, since the printing press, for a hundred years they've been cranking out Bibles, now all of a sudden people can get a copy of the Bible. They can go in with their friends and pool their resources and buy a Bible, and they started reading it, which had never happened before in the last few hundred years. And when they read it, they realized, whoa, the Catholic Church is doing a whole bunch of things that isn't right according to the Bible. And so that's when Martin Luther publicly as a priest challenged the church and said, you got a whole bunch of things that this is not biblical, this isn't right. And then you have this whole Reformation movement. By the way, before the Reformation movement, there were Christians all around the world who didn't swear allegiance to the Pope. The whole Pope thing didn't happen until the 300s. Let me explain this. I'm getting on a rabbit trail. But the, the, the church, when it, for the first 300 years, we think of Catholicism and Orthodox and even Protestant, you know, whatever. You, it didn't look like any of the churches around we see today, except for maybe one. What the church looked like the first 300 years was like the church in China today. Why? Because Christianity was illegal in the Roman Empire. They can put you to death simply for being a Christian. The church was completely underground. So there was no popes and bishops and all this running around. It was an underground church. It didn't have that kind of a structure. It just started spreading village to village, people to people. So if you want a snapshot of the first 300 years of the church, look to China. That's what it looked like. Well, what changed in 300? Well... In the early 300s, Constantine became the emperor of Rome, and he said he became a Christian. You know, which, there's a whole bunch of debate on that. But he made Christianity legal. Not the state religion of Rome, just you can worship any way you want. And by the way, I'm kind of liking Christianity. Still had a bunch of pagan stuff going on in his life. But, you know, that's what happened. Well, then how did Roman Catholicism, well, we would say how that happened is because Rome then and subsequent empires and subsequent rulers wanted to consolidate power. So they made the bishop of Rome, the head of the church in their city, sort of the head of everybody's church. So they could control that. But the whole time, there were people who believed the Bible, had their faith in Jesus, and did not believe in the church of Rome. We have that documented. For example, around 1,000 uh, years after Christ, about right after the split between the Roman church and the Eastern Orthodox church, you know, there were churches in Italy, not that far from Rome, called the Waldenises, who believed in the Bible. They, they commissioned somebody to write the Bible in their own vernacular, which is kind of interesting. That's what we do today. 
And they started reading it, and they realized there's no justification for a pope or anything else. And so what happened? They were persecuted by Catholics. Catholics persecuted a whole bunch of Christians. Anyway, so that, that's, kind of the, that's just kind of the, the history of, of how all that happened. Um, I hope I'm being clear on that. I guess, you know, one of my questions is, yeah, these are old books from the Old Testament time period. Nobody, the Jewish people didn't consider them. But my next question would be, this is an issue that we, you've asked over, or maybe you didn't ask, but you've researched for a few years now. My question is, maybe you should just put this on the shelf, the whole issue with the Apocrypha, and really look to see what's the Bible say about Jesus. I'm not saying you haven't done that. I'm just saying this is kind of a more minor issue than God revealing himself. Although the word of God is huge. don't mean that any other way. But there might be bigger fish to fry getting beyond the Apocrypha. Apocrypha has some, why would they do it? Reformation, because the Apocrypha has things like praying for the dead, petitioning saints in heaven for prayers, worshiping angels, giving money to be forgiving of, of sins. Some of that kind of stuff shows up in the Apocrypha. It's, it's different, a little more mystical. Well, that kind of worked for them during the Reformation to say, okay, now we've found a portion of what we now call the Bible, that kind of, in an odd way, supports this. That's why. That's the why. All right. Anyway, I'm, let me just tell you this. We can trust the Bible. We can trust the Bible we have today. We're going to talk more about this in a few weeks, but we can trust it because there's some other questions. What, what does this mean to us? Here's a, here, here's a question that kind of illustrates this. I'm running out of time. Question. Since you, God... That's a great question. Since, and this is a question directed to God. Since you, God, can do anything, why did you have to sacrifice your son? Couldn't you come up with another plan that would have the same results? That's a great question. How many of you have thought this question yourself? I have. Well, God, if you're God, why the sacrifice of your son? Why? It doesn't make sense. You're God. You can do anything. Why would that have to be the way? Well, there's an answer to that. It's because of God's character. You see, we all imagine if there is a God, that he's all-powerful, that he's righteous, that he's holy. We also picture him as just. You know, he does the right thing. Now, here's the thing about justice. Justice means that when you do wrong, it's right to punish the wrong. Even we want justice, and we're not God. But if somebody kills my child, somebody comes in and murders my child, because they're a terrorist or who knows why, what reason, and then we go to court to convict this person, and I show up because I'm interested. And the judge says, I didn't really know Kevin's kid, so uh, don't worry about this one. Just don't do that anymore. What would I say? I'd be outraged, right? And so would you. And we would say, where is justice? Even we demand justice. What God is saying is he's given us this free will, but he's saying ultimately there will be justice. What we do wrong will be punished. That's a big problem for us. Because since God created us, he gave us this free will so we wouldn't have to be robots to automatically follow God. He could have just created us where we couldn't sin. Ever wonder about that? God, why not just create us where we couldn't do all this wrong stuff? Be so much easier because God didn't want little robots. He wanted somebody that he can actually have a real honest relationship with. That required free will. 
Free will caused all of us to sin against him because we, we want to do our own thing. We want to be in control. So we've all sinned. We've all violated God's standard. You can look those standards up in whatever version of the Old Testament you have. They're all the same. The Ten Commandments would be an example of that. What's right and what's wrong. And, and this is big. We, we hear standards like, oh, you're not supposed to lie. Oh, man, well, I've gone like, boy, about six hours without lying. I got, I got this. I'm nailing it. No, that's not the standard. The standard is never in your entire life lie. If you do, you have to be punished. Never in your entire life ever not honor your parents. Whoa. That's a big standard. Not just you got it right this afternoon. Never ever. Never commit adultery. And then Jesus comes along and says, well, really, the actual sin to that is lust in your heart. That's the sin. Even before you commit adultery. So never lust. Never covet. Never take God's name in vain. Never keep, never stop making sure God is first in your life. We've all violated this. We're, we're all in trouble. We all deserve punishment. It's right for us all to be punished for our sins. Not just the guy who wrote the question. Me and him. We're in the exact same boat. We're in trouble. And then here's the thing. We think that we sinned. It's not that big of a deal. Because we keep comparing ourselves to other people. But we're all messed up. So we're comparing ourselves to the wrong standard. Who we should compare ourselves to is righteous and holy God. We are so far off that standard. God's saying the punishment is severe. It's separation from him forever. By the way, in a place called hell, which by the way was mentioned in the very first question that we talked about. This is how it all comes together. So what do we do? What, God, what the whole message of the Bible is telling us is we are more flawed than we ever admitted. And we are more loved than we ever dared dream. And when you come to a place to realize, maybe today, that you, you have violated God's laws and that the right thing is for you to be to punish, to be punished, and that punishment is separation from God. That's what the Bible's saying. Well, what's the answer? The answer is God is not only just, he's not only righteous and holy, but he loves us. And so he made a way for us to get past the sin and have a relationship with him without violating his justice, his character. And that was by allowing his one and only son God, the second person of the Trinity, come to earth, clothe himself in humanity, live a perfect life, and voluntarily give his life, allowing his creation to torture him to death by crucifixion in order to pay for our personal sin. That's what the whole message of the Bible is teaching us. That's what all those sacrifices in the Old Testament were pointing to. Sin's serious and we got to keep killing animals, innocent animals, to remind ourselves this is serious. And we have to keep doing this year after year, month after month. But there's coming a time where there's a perfect sacrifice once for all. That's Jesus. And so how do we get that? Because not everybody gets that, the Bible says, by faith. Or sometimes we use the words belief or trust. When we understand we're sinners and what, who Jesus is and what he did for us, and that he's offering us a way to be forgiven through his sacrifice. 
So we can be forgiven our sins, but the payment's been paid. Justice has been satisfied through Jesus. It's the only way we can be made right to God. We can't do good things to make up for our bad things. We're supposed to do the good things. I can't get out of a parking ticket by saying, for the next two weeks, I'll park legally. No, that doesn't, you're supposed to park legally. That's the simple message of the gospel, the good news. So before we, we're going to close in a, with a song, and, and they've been knocking it out of the park this morning, musically, and I want to give you an opportunity to respond to God in faith. It, it, it's basically, this is what this means. That you understand you're a sinner, that God loves you and Jesus died for you. And if you had pl- placed your trust in Jesus alone, if you had turned from the way you're living your life and turned to Jesus, realizing there's no other way, it's called repentance, but turn to him and want to follow him and, and want to come to him asking him for forgiveness, he'll forgive you. And if you have your trust that Jesus is the only way and you're putting all your eggs in his basket, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be saved. Not what church you go to, not how many times you've been baptized or whether you've been confirmed. That's not the deal. It's one heart sincerely to God. And I'd like everyone to bow your heads. And if you're kind of thinking, man, I, I'm, I'm tracking with you and I think I'm ready to do this. I want to give you that opportunity. And if you're not there yet, keep coming and, and at least listen to this series. Just have an open mind just to see how good your system is holding up what God has told us so if you're ready to make this step then I would invite you to pray this way you could do it silently I don't want to embarrass anybody just make this prayer if it's sincere only you and God know that make it your prayer and it it would be something like this you put it in your own words and God knows your every thought so you can do it silently something like this make this your prayer father in heaven God I recognize that I'm a sinner and I actually deserve to be punished But God, I also know that you love me. And because of that, you sent your son, Jesus, to take my punishment on himself. And because of that, that opens up a way, Lord, that if I put my faith or my belief or my trust in Jesus alone, and I ask you for forgiveness and ask you to come into my life, you will. That's what it means to be a Christian. And God, right now I'm asking. I'm asking you to forgive me, and I know that's only possible through Jesus. I want you to come into my life. And help me to live it your way. Thank you for loving me. In Christ's name. Amen. If you have any more questions about this, we'll be in room one. We'll be happy to talk to you. Jay, take it away.